everyone. Also from my side, it's great to be with you. Thank you, Abram, for the introduction. And I want to add to what you said to the team that led us in worship through music. What a powerful moment. I always love being at our evening service. There's something about the... Yes. There's something about the authentic passion and dedication towards God when you're in a younger generation's environment that's just so contagious. And I want to encourage you guys that it's a blessing to my soul being part of this and never lose it. Always serve Jesus with so much passion and authenticity. Um, It's really for me an honor to preach tonight. We're going to continue our series. It's called Set Apart. Uh, Those of you who are visiting us, my name is Jonathan. And last week, Nate started with a series and he did an introduction. God is holy. And because God is holy, it demands a response of us. If we say God is our God and he's a holy God, then the people of God should live lives that reflect something about the character of God. That's the idea behind God's holiness. We are his people and we should live holy lives. Today we're going to continue, and as an introduction uh, for what we're going to speak about tonight, I want to share a little bit, uh, something from my life that recently happened to my own detriment, but a couple of weeks ago, uh, I injured my knee quite badly. Um, it was really painful, it was really painful, and I wish there was a cool story that I can give with it. I wish I could say I was hiking, or climbed this incredibly difficult mountain, or I was chasing someone down in the beach, and... Um, just wish there was a cool story to tell, but the reality is it's just old age. And I have to deal with that. Uh, but it was incredibly painful, so much so that uh, my wife um, forced me to go to the doctor. Not because of the pain, but because of my attitude. And um, eventually, being at the doctor, they looked at my knee, and um, the good news is, they can't pick up any apparent reason why there's this moisture on my knee. They can't pick up any mechanical problem that's causing the injury, which is good news. The bad news is they can't pick up any problem. <laughs> and if they don't know what's the cause of the problem, it's difficult to treat and fix the problem. And this got me thinking of how, how true is this idea, if you don't know what's wrong, how are you going to fix it? It is difficult to treat the condition if you don't understand the cause of the condition. In maths, it's difficult to give an answer if you don't understand the problem that's being presented. It's difficult to fix something if you don't know what is causing the brokenness. That's why most people take their cars to a mechanic. We just know it's, something is broken. We don't know how to fix it because we don't understand what is broken. This is the same for the human condition. I'm sure if you look around us in the world that you would agree with me that if we look at humanity, we would agree that something is broken. Something is broken in this world. If we look at some of the things that people do, some of the way that people act, some of the way that people speak about other people, the things that human beings does towards other human beings, if you look at those things, if you look what's happening in the world, the injustice, surely we'll have to agree there's something broken 
and sight the human condition. But what is causing that brokenness? Because we'll never be able to fix if we don't understand the cause of the brokenness. And that's what tonight's is about. If we have a whole series that is focused on the people of God need to respond to God and live a life of, of holy living, live holiness, we first need to answer the question, why can't we live holy lives? What is causing this brokenness? What is the problem that is making us lose holiness? What is keeping us from being able to live a life that honors God? Because ultimately he's holy and he deserves to be worshipped through the way that we live. And we're going to do this. We're going to try and see what's wrong, what's the condition, what's the problem, what is the cause by looking at a really familiar scripture found in Genesis 3. So if you have a Bible with you, I would love you to turn to Genesis 3 as you're doing this. I'm going to give a little bit of background. Now Genesis 3, if you grew up in church, you heard this story many, many times. Even if you don't grow up in church, you know the biblical account of creation and what we call the fall. The problem was that when we are familiar with something, we sometimes skip over some of the important detail. And tonight my prayer is that we won't go and graze over the story because of what we think we know about it, but that we'll pause and walk through this account and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. So with that in mind, let's close our eyes. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is trustworthy, that your word is true. Um, and by faith, we believe it tonight, Lord. I thank you that your word is still relevant to our souls today as it was 2,000 years ago. But Lord, by faith, we believe that your word will not return void. And therefore, Lord, as we submit ourselves unto your word this night, we ask that you would do something that we cannot do by ourselves. We pray that you would enlighten your word and by your spirit speak to our souls and our minds. And though by the power of your word that you would bring transformation to our souls. Lord, we ask by your grace, would you speak to us? Not just as a church, but as individuals as well. We pray this and ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, to give you a little bit of background about the book of Genesis. Um, Genesis was never written to give a detailed, factual account of the creation of the universe. That was not the purpose behind Genesis. It was never to give a detailed account to people as, as to how God created and if that is your perspective, if that is your expectation of the book, you'll probably be disappointed, as many people are. They turn to Genesis and they want to find out how instead of who. It's important that we understand when the book of Genesis was written, it was written towards the Israelites in a time and a season where they had to learn who is this God that has saved them. They have to discover who is God. So the purpose behind Genesis is to write to them to tell them who created and why he created. It's to teach them who is God. See, the ancient world was more concerned about who created, who God is, and why God created rather than the how, when, and the where. 
Our Western mindsets, we want to know how, when, and where. But the original intent of this book was not the how, when, and where, but the who and the why. And if you know the story, Genesis 1 and 2 gives us an account, not just of creation, but of the creator. The purpose was to say, to demonstrate something of the almighty God, this holy God that creates out of nothing. And what he created was good. God creates out of nothing an environment that is good. And then in this creation, God's create, God creates the crown of his creation, human beings. And he places them in this environment and he says, this is very good. And for the human beings, he said, I will create them in my image. This is really important. So man was created to reflect something of who God is. There's something about the image of God that people were to carry into this world, into this known world. God made them in his likeness and then he gave them purpose. He gave them certain things that they had to do. God said, I'm going to bless you and then you are to carry my image throughout the world. Meaning wherever the sun stretches, where all that we know should reflect something of who God is. We as people were made to reflect the goodness of God. Carry the image of God. And then I'm giving you governance, authority to rule on my behalf in line with my will. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is about. A good God that creates a good universe, that creates human beings in his likeness to act on his behalf and live out his will. And ultimately, God creates people so that we may experience Him. God creates from relationship. Let us create man in our likeness. God creates from relationship for relationship. And then people were, were placed in this place that we read about. It's called Eden. And in Eden, God provided everything that was needed. They could eat from everything there. They had purpose, they had the presence of God, and God provided everything they needed, and then God said, it's very good, and God blessed them. This is the backdrop for Genesis 3. Can you for a moment try to imagine it? Can you for a moment think how it would be not to know evil? Because this is the environment that they're in. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now later on we see in the world that the serpent wasn't a literal snake. It was the metaphor for the enemy, for Satan. And he was crafty. He said to the woman... Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be 
like God, knowing good and evil. Let's pause there for a moment. This is the strategy of the enemy. Listen to what he's doing. Listen how he's crafty and trying to deceive the woman. And ladies, I'm not, listen. It's just how it is, okay? So I'm not speaking down on you, okay? But the enemy, Satan, comes to the woman and he says, did God really say? This is his intro to deception. Did God really say? Is God's word true? Is this really what God meant? How often do you hear things that God is saying about us as children? And then you wonder, but is it true for me? Could it be that the enemy is still whispering in our ears, did God really say? He comes to this woman and he, he questions God's word. Is it true? He goes on. And then he says, you must not eat from any tree of God. And he twists God's words. God said to them, you may eat of any tree apart from a certain tree. Satan comes and he says, you may not eat of any tree. He twists the words of God. And though it's a half truth, it is still a lie. It's still a lie. And then he goes further and he says, you will not certainly die. He flat out calls God a liar. This is what's happening here. What God said isn't true. So he started off by questioning the word of God. Then he twists the word of God and then ultimately goes, what God said is not true. And ultimately he questions the character of God. He says, God lie to you. You will not die. He goes further. For God knows, which is true. God does know that you would be like him. What is he doing in this moment? He's enticing them. Disobeying God is not that bad. This is what he's saying to them. He's minimizing the effects of disobedience to God. He says, for God knows that your eyes will be opened, you will be like God. What he's saying, there's something in this for you that God is withholding from you. There's something for you to receive. There's something that you will gain. Sin is not that bad. There's something that you get from sin. There's something that's in it for you. There's certain pleasure. There's certain things that you will find in doing this and that. Disobedience to God's word is not that bad. That's what he's saying to Eve. I had a conversation with Anna and Andrew before the service of how in modern day Christianity... People are so focused on you 
and we minimize the effect of sin in our lives and the power of gospel because there's a subtle belief that sin is not that bad. The problem with this is he's insinuating that God is keeping something that's good from you. God told you, don't do it. Doing. It's not just that there's something of sin for you. It's not just that sin is not that bad. It's what you're actually saying is God is not that good. God is keeping something from you. And then I find it so ironic that he entices her with the false promise, you will be like God when they are already created in the image of God. They are already the crown of God's creation. They are created already holy. They can walk in relationship with God. They have the character and nature of God in them. They are made in the image of God. And there's this false promise that there is something more. They are enticed by a false promise. And I want to suggest tonight that most sin starts with discontentment. They're already shaped in the image of God, and there's a discontentment. Maybe there is something more. Most sin starts with a discontentment in our hearts. I deserve more. I need more. There's something better. This is his strategy. And his strategy hasn't changed. His strategy is still the same today for each one of us. And if you think that he's going to bypass you because your life doesn't matter, he is intent on keeping you from God. And his strategy is the same. He'll make you question the word of God and the character of God. Because if we doubt the character of God, will be susceptible for anything else. This is the tension that Adam and Eve face in this moment. Who's, who's, who should we trust? Who's speaking the truth? Is it God or this creature? This is the tension. They have to decide, is God good? Because if God is good, then God can be trusted. But if God is not good, then we cannot trust God. This is ultimately the decision they have to make. Can God be trusted? And this is the decision we face, face every day. Do you believe God is good? Can God be trusted? Because if God is good and his intentions is good and he goes, don't do that, it's because he has the best interest for you at heart. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Daily, this is the accusation against God. Is his intentions good? 
Is he really faithful? Will he really come through for you? Can he be trusted? Because if we doubt God, we will be susceptible to trusting anything else. See, Adam and Eve, like all of us, are given this great gift of freedom of choice. You need to understand that in order for God to be loving, He had to give us freedom of choice. He couldn't be manipulative. He had to give Adam and Eve and each one of us the opportunity to love Him back. And in order to love, you have to be able to make the decision to say yes or no towards someone. God gave them the freedom of decision out of love in order that they can decide if they want to love him back. This is the tension. This is the decision they have to make. Will we love God back by trusting him? God has entrusted creation into their hands. Will they trust and love him back? Fortunately, we know the story. Verse 4. When the women saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Men, unfortunately, we cannot blame women. In that last sentence, there's a very condemning phrase. He was with her. And he did nothing. I'm sorry to say that I think this is a trend that we pick up more and more in the world. In creation, there was a man that know that knew what was happening was not right, and he did nothing. And I'm not advocating that men has a higher authority or higher role or something in that line. I'm simply saying the pattern of sin is when good men does nothing. Both of them sin. Both of them in this moment chose against God. Eve looked at the fruit and she determined that this fruit was good. She looked at it. Pleasing to the eye. Desirable for gaining wisdom. After this week of fasting, Friday evening, you would look at some stuff and you would go, it's good for food and desirable for gaining something. But she looks at it and she determines it is good. 
And maybe God is holding out on us. Maybe there is something to gain from this. And then she acted on her desire and she ate it. She did what was right in her own eyes. Stopped doing what was right in the eyes of God. And she acted on what was right in her own eyes. And in doing, doing so, she decided to trust herself instead of God. See, if, we cannot be, if God cannot be trusted, who's left to be trusted? You. If the enemy can get you to, to doubt God's character and his word, if you cannot trust him anymore, who else is left to be trusted? You. And this is what happens. Eve and Adam doubts. Maybe God is holding out on us. Maybe there is something greater for us. Maybe there's something to get from this. Maybe God is not good. And they decide, I'll find out for myself. And they did what is right in their own eyes. And by doing this, they chose to live independently from God. This is the problem with the human condition. Before the service, if I asked you what's wrong with human condition, if you grew up in Christianity, you would have all, all probably have, from habit have gone, sin. But what do we mean with sin? I want to suggest tonight that out of the discontentment of our hearts, we choose to live independently from God by doing what is right in our own eyes. This is the brokenness of our soul and the problem with the human condition. Out of our discontentment, we live independently from God because we decide what is good. We act on what's right in our own eyes. There's something in all of us um, that we want to be independent. That's why teenagers look forward to ending school and doing their own thing. There's something inside of us that, that's enticing about independence. We subtly believe that freedom is found in the ability to do whatever you want to do. That's our subtle definition of freedom. Freedom is the ability to do whatever you want to do. I want to suggest tonight that that's not freedom, but a recipe for disaster and pain. I don't think humans have the capacity or ability to do what is right. And because we're doing whatever we is right in our eyes, there's suffering in the world. And that's why people feel that when God puts certain boundaries in place, and God says, stay within the boundaries of my word. People feel, oh no, we're being limited. We're being constrained. This is, we shouldn't be disobedient to God. God is keeping us from having fun. God is keeping us from experiencing life. God is not doing that. And Christianity and religion is not supposed to be restrictive. It's supposed to be protective. It's supposed to help us to walk in the freedom that God has for us. Freedom is not the ability 
to do whatever is right in your eyes. There's a belief that safety and stability are found in power and control. And that's why we try to control everything around us. That's why people pursue uh, money as a means of safety. Because we believe if we can control our environments, we'll be safe. But in some way or another, all of us have failed to completely trust God. All of us, in some way or another, have chosen to live independently from God. And the evidence of our lack of trust, the evidence of our independency, is seen in our anxious lifestyles. I read, now someone said, anxiety is what it feels like to mistrust God with the things we really care about. Our anxiety is a sign that we're not trusting God. It's a sign that we live in certain areas independent from God. All of us have done this. See, in a sense, it's easy to trust God when everything is going well. It's easy to worship, say God is good and He's holy and I surrender all when everything is good. When you don't have to worry about your finances. It's easy to trust God. But can you trust God when your budget does not work out? And your expenses just keeps on piling up. Can you trust God when there is not enough money in your account? Can you trust God when you don't know where finances are going to come from? Is God then still good? Can you trust God when the prognosis is not good? When your health is at risk? Can you trust God when your future is unclear and uncertain? Is God then still good? Can you trust God when, when tragedy strikes? When the injustice of this world affects you directly? Is God still good? Can God still be trusted? When the reality of life strikes and there's things that happens to you that feels unfair, when you face suffering and pain and hurt, can you still trust God? When loneliness knocks at the door of your heart and you feel you'll never get someone, you'll be alone for the rest of your life, can you still trust God? What about when God asks you to do something that doesn't make sense at all? Is God still good? This is a question we face every day. Can I trust God? All of us, in some way, 
have failed to trust God completely. This is the problem with the human condition. We have chosen to live independently from him. The prophet Isaiah explained it as following. He says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Maybe not intentionally choosing, God is not good, I'm not trust God anymore. Maybe unintentionally we've just taken control over certain areas of our lives. And like sheep, we've gone astray, living independently from God. See, choosing not to trust God, to do what is right in our own eyes, to live independently had a far greater effect on humanity than just introducing anxiety. Their decision to live independently from God made them lose their holiness. Up until this stage, they were created in the image of God. But by through, but by through living independently, they lost their holiness. And sin entered this world and affected everything. seven then the eyes of both of them opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves then the man and his wife heard the sound of the lord god as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the lord god among the trees in the garden but the lord god called to the man where are you holiness is lost their independence brought a separation between them and God. Suddenly, this loving, caring relationship that was there with God is lost. There's a disconnect with God. They lost their innocence. In a moment, they suddenly knew evil. Suddenly, they knew hatred. Their innocence was lost in that moment. Death into the world. Yes, they didn't die immediately, but because of sin, death entered God's creation. And they will face spiritual death, relational death, and ultimately physical death. The world will face the devastating effects of sin. They lost the image of God because they no longer reflected the holiness of God. They were no more longer true representatives of who God is. They lost the purpose of God because they became self-seeking. And they lost their relationship with God because they choose, chose to live independently. Everything that God gave them and blessed them, they lost. But God. And if we read this account and we don't pause at this moment, but God will miss something so significant. But God called to the man, where are you? They're hiding. Because when the scripture says, God came down and they heard the sound of God in the garden. This wasn't the gentle breeze. It wasn't the gentle, oh, God is on his way. 
the holy almighty God came down in his holiness. And suddenly, God was different. Suddenly, the holiness of God confronted them. There was not a gentle breeze. It was a mighty rushing wind. And they were scared. Rightfully so. Because suddenly, they saw that he is different. And they are hiding from God. But God calls out to the man. Where are you? And don't miss what's happening here. This is beautiful. The almighty God knows exactly what's happening. He's not playing hide and seek in this moment. He's not like, hey, Adam and Eve, come out, come out wherever you are. It's not like a dad playing with a toddler. I can't see you. God knows exactly what has happened. God knows exactly what they're doing. And yet God chooses to respond in a certain way. Where are you? Where are you? God comes down in his holiness and he seeks out man in his independence. Where are you, Adam? God is still seeking out each one of us. Not only did he create life, not only did he initiate life, but he's the one that initiates restoration. God's the one that gives the first step. He's the one that comes down. And calls out to humanity, where are you? And in a sense, God is saying, I'm still here. Where are you? And then God goes on. He asked them a couple of questions. You can read this on your own. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God already knows these answers. Why is God doing this? Why is God presenting questions towards them? See, in asking them these questions, God was giving them the opportunity for confession. This was their opportunity. God is being merciful. He's giving them the opportunity to respond with confession. See, confession is the first step towards reconciliation. God is showing them mercy. And, and here's an opportunity. Adam and Eve could just have gone, God, you know what we did. We're sorry. But if you know the story, something else happened. God asked them, where are you? What have you done? What does Adam do? Now Adam stands up. Quite a while ago, but now he goes, you know, God, it wasn't me. It was this woman. And then Adam goes a step further. He goes, it doesn't just go, it wasn't me, it was this woman, she made me eat. He goes, it was this woman that you gave me. God is merciful 
Where are you, Adam? What have you done? And instead of going, God, I'm sorry, Adam goes. It's actually your fault. You're the reason. And Adam acts on that what he started to believe. You're not good. This is Adam's response to God. Here's an opportunity for him to get back in right standing with God. And Adam still chooses to respond independently. And he says, what he's saying is, it is your fault. You're not good. And in that moment, Adam continues to choose to live independently from God. Where are you? God stoops down to humanity and he's still seeking out people and he's asking, where are you? See, we look at this account in Genesis 3 and we see the story of a tree planted in the middle of the Garden of Eden, a tree that looked and presented everything that it was good and it would bring life, but in the end, resulted in death and independence. But in this moment when God cries out, where are you? God already knows that there will be another tree. There will be another tree not placed in the middle of any other garden, but placed in the middle of humanity. And we will look upon that tree and everything about that tree will look like death. But instead of death, whoever eats from that tree will have eternal life. When God calls out to Adam, where are you? He already knows there will be another tree. The tree that we ate from that said, independence, there will be another tree. And there will be one that will be fully dependent on God. Fully trusting Him more than we'll ever be, ever be able to. 1 Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness so that holiness may be restored in us. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. There's another tree. And whoever eats from its fruit will be restored back to God. And he will be our overseer. We will have life. And Jesus took the sin of this world, the independence, the self-seekingness of this world upon himself on the cross. And by doing that, he restores us back into relationship with God back into holiness, back into his image, back into his purposes, and he turns our anxieties into faith. You'll still face challenges in this world, but now we have the privilege of in relationship going, God, I can do nothing, but my faith is in you. I'm not going to be anxious. And God turns fear into faith if we're willing to trust him. See, the cross is God's 
megaphone to the world. Where are you? Where are you? How do we eat from this tree? It's simple. We turn to God and we confess our sins. The opportunity that was given to Adam is given to all of us. And all of us can go, God, I'm sorry. I've sinned. I've chosen to follow my own ways and live independently from you. Would you forgive me? Confession is the first step to restoration. And after confession, we put our trust in Him. That's how we experience this new life in Christ. It's confessing our sins and trusting Him as our God, our Lord, our Savior. Believing that He is good. And in doing this, we see our holiness is restored to our soul. How He's the one that fixes that what is broken. Where are you? Like Adam and Eve, we can continue to, out of the discontent of our hearts, choose to live independently from God by doing what is right in our own eyes. Or we can eat from the fruit, the tree of life. Where are you? It slows our eyes. And as we're ending off this evening, I want to give an opportunity for a moment just for personal prayer and reflection and for you to ask the question, God, is there an area of my life where I'm not trusting you? And whatever comes to mind, this is an opportunity to turn to God and to, to confess to God, I'm, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you help me to live a life that honors you? trust you wholeheartedly maybe you sit here tonight and you you sense how God is calling out to you where are you opportunity for you to respond God I'm sorry I've been following my own way I've been going astray I've been hiding away from you would you forgive me where you are, would you take a moment and just pray into this. If you realize tonight there's an area of your life where you're not trusting God, an area where you've chosen to live according to your own way and you live in independence, I want to pray into that. And I want to pray with you, but I want to ask you that you would open up your hands in front of you. as a physical sign to say, God, I surrender. I'm choosing to let go of control. I'm choosing to not to trust my own ways, but to trust you. And if that's you, 
you pray with in your heart? Father God, you are faithful far beyond our own faithfulness. And God, we believe again tonight that you are good and worthy to be trusted. There is no one like you. You are incomparable. But you are holy, Lord. And you deserve so much more. And tonight, Lord, we turn to you, Lord, and we want to repent and we want to confess, Lord, we're sorry that we've chosen to follow our own ways, to live independently from you. We've taken control, Lord, and allowed anxiousness in our soul. And we turn to you tonight, Lord, and what you've done on the cross is the megaphone that you are good. And we declare again, Lord, we're, we're not basing our belief in your goodness on what we experience and see in this world, but we base it on what we've already seen on the cross. And therefore, Lord, pray, would you forgive us? And would you help us, Lord? Would you draw us closer to you, Lord? Would you help us experience your peace and your presence? Lord, would you strengthen us to help us to really live a life that honors you? Because, Lord, in this moment, we choose to say again, we trust you. It's about you. It's not about us. as we do this we pray that you would come and shape us to be the men and women that live a life that honors you and declares to this world that there is a God that is good and can be trusted in spite of what's happening in this world I pray that others will come to know you because of what you're doing in our hearts tonight we ask this in your name Lord Jesus we're going to conclude we're going to sing this song again now we're going to sing it as a prayer. And I want to encourage you, let's stand. Or you can kneel, or you can bow down, whatever you want to do. But it's a moment where we say, God, I surrender because you're worthy to be trusted. I surrender because I don't want to follow my own ways. I choose to follow your will. I choose to trust you because you are good.
Jesus, breathe within. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way.